Okay, Judges chapter 11. If you'll join me there, we didn't quite get out of the 11th chapter together. We're looking now at the life of this judge, Jephthah, who was certainly somewhat of a uh, rugged individual in sort of his character and his temperament. He had sort of a a hard upbringing, an early stage of his life. He was the son of a harlot, a Bible tells us, and because of that and his early uh, life and family experiences, he dealt with a lot of mistreatment, a lot of hardship from his family. They sort of ostracized him and, and pushed him out, and he ended up finding himself somewhat living in, in kind of a somewhat like of a Robin Hood type experience, living out in the wilderness and men rallying around him. But of course, even in the midst of these things, the difficulties, the the disappointments, the hard family life, and what was then taking place as he was living out uh, in the uh, land of, of Tob and men banded together with them as they were going out doing these raiding things. In the midst of all those things, God was developing character. God was preparing him to be a leader because God ultimately knew that he would be the next judge in Israel's history that would be tapped and would have to step into that place of leadership. And it's just a beautiful thing to see how God never wastes any experiences in our lives. Whether it be the good things we go through or whether it be the difficult or hard things, whether it's the things that other people do to us, misfortunes that happen to us, hard things, or even at sometimes the poor choices we make ourselves, that God is an, just has the amazing ability to never waste an experience or waste an opportunity. He uses all those things, the Bible says, working all things for the good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And uh, God used these things to prepare Jephthah for the next season of his life. God knew what was coming. And ultimately, when the Ammonites, again, were sort of oppressing Israel for a season of time, when they fell back into sin and turned away from the Lord, the people became so desperate they wanted someone to rise up and deliver them and none other could they think of that would be the man that was rugged and tough enough to be able to lead this deliverance than Jephthah himself. So they go to Jephthah, remember we saw, and they ask him to come and to lead a deliverance militarily. Jephthah embraces uh, their offer and comes back. He tries to diplomatically reason with the people of Ammon at first, but they're unreasonable. Uh, they want conflict. They want war. And after he tries to make peace, uh, depending upon what he could do, they didn't commit to that. And they tried to use deception and false reasoning. He, knowing the word of God well, knowing the history of Israel well, was able to dialogue and somewhat kind of debate with them to prove that they were the ones in the wrong. He was not the one in the wrong. But it tells us as we came to sort of toward the end of chapter 11 uh, that the people wouldn't heed his words in verse 28. And then we left off looking in verse 29 where it said the spirit of the Lord then came upon Jephthah. So now the anointing of God comes upon him this baptism or endowment with power of the spirit of God comes upon Jephthah's life for his ministry and service and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and through Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah of Gilead he then advanced toward the people of Ammon so he's now heading out into battle with them he realizes that conflict is unavoidable there's going to be a military engagement so he now under the spirit of the Lord begins to advance forward into this conflict that he knows is on the horizon and as he's heading out into battle against the people of Ammon it tells us verse 30 where we pick up in chapter 11 that Jephthah made a vow to the Lord 
And he said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah now unsure of the outcome of this impending battle, whether he's going to be victorious or not. Uh, it seems here somewhat in spiritual zeal, again, in enthusiasm. He senses the presence of God in the midst of what he's doing. Uh, he, he has just had the spirit of the Lord come upon him. So he's had somewhat of a spiritual experience in his life and whenever we have a spiritual experience with the Lord maybe a real encounter with the Lord whether it's when you first get saved or the Lord just kind of does a work in your life typically with that the byproduct is a lot of times then there's a lot of spiritual zeal and there's a lot of enthusiasm and passion for the Lord and that's certainly not a, a bad thing at all the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we shouldn't be lagging in diligence but fervent in spirit serving the Lord and, and it's not a good thing when we become sort of lethargic and apathetic spiritually uh, diligence and fervency in spirit and zeal for the Lord that's a wonderful thing uh, the danger is the Bible tells us is zeal without knowledge and that can be in the same way out of balance not a good thing when we have a lot of passion and zeal but we don't temper or balance that with knowledge that was a problem in uh, Paul writing to the Romans he said they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge and that led to a, a problematic condition in their lives but here Jephthah he's full of zeal he's full of passion and therefore he makes it says this vow rather a rash vow he just says in verse 30 to the Lord Lord if you will deliver the people of Ammon in my hands, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house, the first thing that comes out to meet me when I'm returning from battle victoriously, if you've given me victory, then he says, it will surely be the Lord's. It'll be dedicated to you and I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, there's debate here even in the words of Jephthah in verse 30 there when he says, it shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Uh, some say that word and could also from the Hebrew potentially be translated or the idea that Jephthah was saying, I will uh, offer it over to the Lord. In other words, whatever comes shall be dedicated to the Lord or I will offer it as a burnt offering. The idea in Jephthah's mind being depending upon what comes out, that he didn't know what would come out to meet him. And if it was something that qualified for a burnt offering, he would offer it as a burnt offering. If it was something else, then it would just be fully dedicated over to the Lord. It would be given over to God and devoted to God out of gratitude. But what Jephthah does here, again, in zeal and enthusiasm, is he makes somewhat of a rash vow, we'll see. And it's going to cost him as we read further in the chapter here. He, he kind of really, he's kind of making a bargain with God here. He thinks he's cutting a deal with God. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes we can make the mistake of doing that. He proposes this impulsive vow, but it's totally unnecessary. And he's kind of like trying to bargain with God. God, if you do this, then I promise I'll do that for you. And right, we, we all know perhaps at times maybe we've done that, even maybe before we were saved. I certainly can think back in my life and 
There were a few times in my life where I kind of found myself, Lord, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of make one of those prayers or people, Lord, if you do this, then I promise I'm going to do that. Or, you know, if you bless me with all this money, I'll give this portion of it to you. And, and we make these bargains and deals with God. If it's somehow this is w- the way that we need to relate to God, that God is kind of just looking for a really great deal. And if you present him a good enough deal, he's going, I can't pass up a good deal. I mean, that is a, that's, a, that's a hot deal. All right. I mean, boy, I mean, the terms of that contract are irresistible. As if somehow that's the way God's going to operate, that we have to kind of negotiate with him. And that if we give him a good enough contract or a good enough bargain or deal, he's going to capitalize on it. Almost kind of gives the idea that we can manipulate God. To get from God what we want. But this is what Jephthah is doing here. Again, it's out of impulse. It's a rash vow, but it's totally unnecessary. God does not require this of him. There was no need for him to do this. God even had nothing to do with the terms of this idea that Jephthah throws out. It's something that he's doing in rash zeal to kind of propose something to manipulate God's hand to give him what he wants. And again, there's no need to bribe God. That's not God's nature. God works according to his grace. God wants to bless our lives. God wants to help us. God wants to give us victory and do things for us. We don't have to bribe him to get him to work on our behalf. We don't have to offer him a good enough bargain to somehow get him to do something to bless us. God works according to his grace and his goodness, and he works according to his will. Uh, He doesn't consider just a good deal and only act if the deal is good enough. So Jephthah makes this rash vow. Again, keep in mind, The Bible does not forbid making vows. The Bible does seem to indicate, especially when you get to the New Testament, that it's not necessary to make vows. But when we make vows, the Bible also says that we should keep our vows. So so here's the quandary. Is people by nature, let me be very candid, people by nature aren't very good at keeping their word, if you haven't noticed. You know, I mean, we see this all the time. People, you know, they get especially when they get real excited about something. You know, oh, this is so great! It's, oh, man, I, this is fantastic! I'm going to be involved in. It. And then all of a sudden, you know, where are they at? I mean, they were so enthusiastic the first time they, you know, showed up, and then all of a sudden, you know, oh, this is great and fantastic! But then people don't follow through with things, and God knows our nature in that. So God cautions in His Word: Listen, don't be rash and make impulsive vows and commitments if you really have no intention on keeping them or if you really didn't think that through. It's not necessary anyway. You don't have to make a vow anyway, God says. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no, God tells us. We don't even have to make a vow, but when we do, then we should be people of integrity. Well, this vow is going to cost Jephthah because he makes a very rash vow that turns around to be a real problematic thing in his life. Now, let me just say again, I, I don't think Jephthah had in his mind anything evil or perverse when he made this rash vow. We've seen in what we've seen of his life so far, he's a man who clearly knew the word of God because he debates the people of Ammon with the scriptures as his basis and his knowledge. So he understands the word of God. I want you to keep that in your mind. He seems to be someone who has a a, a heart towards the Lord and some of what we see in this life. Hebrews 11 refers to him as a man of faith. He ends up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. But what he does do is get himself into quite a pickle because of this vow that he makes. Look what happens, verse 32. It says, Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands. But God had been doing that every time someone 
cried out to the Lord and a judge was raised up. This wasn't just because Jephthah's bargain was so good for the first time God came through. God's been doing this because it's his nature. So the Lord delivered him, verse 33, and he defeated them from Arar as far as uh, Minith, 20 cities, and to Abel Karimim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Verse 34, here's where the problem starts. And when Jephthah came to his house, he's coming home from battle now, at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And she was his, make it worse, only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. The idea is my, my heart has just sank. He went from celebrating a great victory to rending his garment. This was typical of the expressiveness of the Jews as they'd express their grief. It was like rending their heart. They would rend their garments. And he says, oh my goodness, you have brought me from the peaks of enthusiasm about a victory. And his heart just dropped as now, guess who's the first person out his door to meet him? His only daughter comes out the door now and that's the first one he sees he then says you are among those who trouble me for i have given my word to the lord and i cannot go back on it now jephthah understands when you make a vow god expects you to keep your vow now what jephthah didn't take into consideration is sometimes we make stupid vows sometimes we make foolish vows Sometimes we say things that we shouldn't say. Uh, and here Jephthah, in one sense, you could look at him and say, wow, you know, he is a man of integrity because he wants to honor his vow to the Lord. And in that sense, we can commend him. That's, that's a heart of integrity. That's a heart that says, even though it may be difficult, I'm going to keep my vow. And listen, there is a, a verse in the Psalms, I love it, where it says that the, the, the honorable man is one who keeps his oath even when it hurts. And I think it's a beautiful thing because sometimes we make commitments. Sometimes we are in situations and it's hard to keep your commitment, maybe in marriage, or it's hard to keep your commitment to something. And it actually hurts and is difficult because you committed to something and it's hard to stay faithful in it. But the Bible says that the commendable man, the man of character, the godly man keeps his oath even when it's hard to do it, keeps his commitment, keeps his covenant. And Jephthah in this sense does have noble character in this way and, and certainly it is a commendable thing that he says listen I've given my word to the Lord I need to honor my word to God I need to be faithful to what I've made as a commitment before the Lord and I think that's a beautiful precious thing and, 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 and something certainly that's commendable about Jephthah's heart look at verse 36 as well it says so she said to him his daughter now my father if you have given your word to the Lord do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth because the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the people of Ammon. Now, I have written right in my Bible there in pencil, what a heart, wow. I mean, I mean that's impressive if you think about it. When you look at the heart of Jephthah, he made the vow, which was kind of rash and impulsive, and now he's trying to say, I need to follow through. But consider, if you would, here's his daughter. She had no involvement in any of this. 
She had no say in any of this, no control over any of this, and she's apparently aware of this vow somehow, or maybe it's communicated but not recorded. And as Jephthah says this, and she somehow realizes the the implications of what this vow is, you want to talk about a, a, just a, a beautiful heart of submissiveness? That this young girl apparently has enough of a love for the Lord and a respect for her father that she says, Dad, if this is what the will of the Lord is, then I accept the will of the Lord. And, and Father, I'm willing to submit to God and I'm willing to submit to you and I, and I trust your authority and covering. And she says, my father, if you've given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what's gone out of your mouth. In other words, she's saying, I care more about what honors God than what I want for my own life. I care more about the will of the Lord and being submitted to the will of God. And it's, this is a beautiful picture of not my will, but God's will, his will be done. I mean, the heart of this young girl, which again, let me say this, shows me that Jephthah's raised a godly daughter. I mean, that's not a, that's not a natural attitude. Again, I don't know how old the daughter was, whether she was, uh, again, 10 years old was she 15 years old was she a young adult it seems maybe somewhere in that teenage young adult range because she's still a virgin she has not gotten married yet they typically got married young in this culture so this is a young girl who basically is willing to give up all of her life and all of her dreams all of her desires and all of her aspirations to say you know what i will give up everything and i will submit myself to the will of the lord i'll trust my father's leadership over my life i mean that's an incredible heart I mean, that is a heart of a young, godly woman, a very, very beautiful thing to see. And to see, I think, again, the type of daughter that this man raised. Now, that being said, I think these are important things to keep in mind because as you reason this out, and we have this rather peculiar situation that happens here with this man Jephthah, and certainly this was one of his probably flaws and mistakes in his life, it kind of helps to think through what really did happen here because it's somewhat vague. Let's look how the chapter ends. It says, Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail, notice, my virginity. The fact that she would never experience marriage, which was the dream of every young girl in Israel, that she would never give birth to a child, which was the dream of every Jewish girl. They value children. They didn't, they, they didn't devalue children. In this culture, children were a heritage, a blessing from the Lord. In, in this culture, you felt you were cursed. We'll see in the next chapter. You felt you were cursed if you couldn't have a child. So every child, every woman wanted to have a child. So this was a great grief. She could never enjoy marriage as a young girl. She could never have a child. Let me go bewail or grieve my virginity for two months on the mountains with my friends. And so he said, go. He gave her permission, sent her away for two months. She went with her friends, bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man, indicating she never experienced marriage or the privilege to give birth to a child and become a mother. And it became then a custom that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament, some translations say to commemorate, to remember the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Now, here's the thing. We read that and and. and 
the thing that becomes a question and scholars debate to this day did, wait a minute did, did he actually offer his daughter as a burnt offering I mean did he actually engage in child sacrifice and actually put his daughter to death and sacrifice his daughter we know what a burnt offering is right a burnt offering was when they would put the entire animal upon the altar and the entire thing was burned and consumed in the fire and again this is why no doubt he referenced a burnt offering because a burnt offering was a, an, an implication of God I want to fully dedicate myself to you just like this animal is fully consumed I want my whole life to be fully consecrated and dedicated to you and this becomes the struggle here and here's the thing the scripture somewhat vague I mean, it does not directly say, and there are plenty of very specific things that God's word says at times. It does not specifically say that he put his daughter to death. It does not specifically say that he offered her. It says that he carried out his, his vow with her. And they lamented and always remembered as she bewailed her virginity. Now, again, here's why I brought up some of the things earlier. I don't think when Jephthah made that vow, he had human sacrifice in mind. I have a hard time believing, knowing the character and the nature of this man Jephthah, that when he said, whatever comes out my door, I'm going to offer as a burnt offering to the Lord. I, I have a hard time believing in Jephthah's mind that he had human sacrifice in mind. First of all, he knows the Mosaic law. That was clear in the chapter earlier when he was spouting off references to Scripture. So he knows, according to Mosaic law, that child sacrifice is prohibited in God's law. Leviticus 18 and 20 and Deuteronomy 12 and 18. There are multiple places where God prohibits sacrificing their children. Secondarily, this man knows historically this is the very reason that God was so often judging the pagan nations around them because they were engaging in child sacrifice. So it's really difficult to swallow to think that one, he was thinking that initially and two, that he would actually carry that out when he knows that would totally contradict the Mosaic law and this was the reason God was judging the other nations I think the idea in his mind was whatever first approached him of his possessions of his would be fully dedicated over to God or if it was a male animal that it could be then offered as a burnt sacrifice keep in mind Part of the requirement of a burnt sacrifice was it had to be a male animal. His daughter is a female, first of all, she's not a male, and second of all, she's a human and not an animal. So Jephthah, knowing these things, I think in his mind, depending upon what he saw as it came out, was the, was the, the thing. I have a hard time wondering, and again, we, we're not 100% sure. It could be that he did that. I, I can't be certain. A lot of this has become supposition and we're not 100% sure. The text kind of leaves it somewhat vague. Obviously, the indication it was a foolish vow either way that he found himself in a real problematic uh, sticking place with. Uh, would Jephthah really offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice, his only daughter? And uh, would anyone in Israel in that time have allowed that? You remember later on, we'll see historically, 
that uh, in the days of Saul, Saul will make a vow and a strong law uh, that requires ultimately from his perspective that his son Jonathan would be the one put to death because he said anybody who eats until all my enemies are avenged will be put to death and Jonathan's out leading the battle and Jonathan sees some honey dripping from a tree and he's weary and tired and he just does the smart thing he gets a little honey and he's revived and goes out and has a greater victory and word comes back that his son did this and Saul basically in his obsession uh, says I don't care if it's my son or not kill him put him to death and the people said you're not putting him to death and they stopped Saul from carrying out his vow because you're not killing him he's the prince of Israel you're not putting him to death so I have to wonder would the people in this day you couldn't hide this Jephthah was leader would the people have let Jephthah put his daughter on a, a barbecue and offer her as a burnt offering would they have stood for that it's very likely that under Mosaic law Jephthah knew as well the legal option to redeem at times persons even when a vow was made Leviticus chapter 27 refers to how at times you could offer a valuation of money to redeem a person by a certain valuation of money being dedicated to the temple uh, for that reason some scholars conclude that what Jephthah did as a result of carrying out this vow is he changed his daughter's fate from being a burnt sacrifice because it wasn't an animal to basically her being resigned to being a lifelong virgin that was dedicated to the service of the sanctuary where she would live there and because of that she would remain a continuous virgin she would never experience marriage she would never have a normal life but Exodus chapter 38 records that there were some women who basically lived assembling daily at the door of the house of the Lord and their lives were fully given over to temple and to tabernacle service. Kind of like maybe today what we might, you know, in our mind infer as, as like someone like a nun, you know, kind of that idea that their life is just fully dedicated to God. They don't marry. They don't bear children. Kind of this idea in Exodus 38 seems to give record that this was part of what some women did. And some people conclude that what this is referring to and why it says she bewailed her virginity and the people every year remembered her and her virginity is that she was kind of grieved that she would never get the opportunity as a young girl a lot of these women who assembled at the door were older widows and that she as a young girl would have to give up marriage and give up her dreams and be kind of fully dedicated to the lord but yet she submitted to that and she said father if this is the case i'm willing to do this now uh, you can go home and toss and turn all night long in bed trying to figure out the right answer Hopefully I didn't confuse you and kind of gave you some options to think through. Let's read chapter 12. It says, And then the men of Ephraim gathered together after this, and they crossed over towards Zaphon, and they said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon? We will burn your house down on you with fire. So this guy's got one problem after another, doesn't he? I mean, first he makes a foolish vow, he's stuck, and of course the lesson there in that, you know, just it's not wise to make rash, impulsive vows. Uh, he, somehow he gets over that experience, and it seems not too long after this, now the men of Ephraim come to Jephthah, and they start to really challenge and give him a hard time, really kind of criticizing him and giving him their complaint over what he's just done in this great military feat 
to give victory and deliverance to the people. They come to him and say, wait a minute, what's this? You didn't include us, they say. How come you crossed over and fought against the people of Ammon? And when you did it, you didn't call us to go with you. The idea is, how come you didn't include us in the battle? What's the matter with that? And, and basically, here's what you're finding again. The people of Ephraim, if you haven't noticed, uh, they seem to be just kind of troublemakers. Uh, because if you remember with the life of Gideon back in, I believe it was chapter 8, it was the Ephraimites as well, these same people who came to Gideon. After his battle, where he with 300 men defeated the, the Midianites, the Ephraimite people came to Gideon as well, and they did the same thing. And they were angry because somehow they weren't included in the situation. And so they started giving Gideon a hard time. Hey, how come he didn't include us in the battle? And, and, and again, this kind of you know jealous, insecure type temperament they had, and they were upset they weren't included, and Gideon had to defuse the situation. And now... Here we go, next round, not too long later. Here's the same people back again, and the Ephraimites kind of showing this seems to be just their temperament uh, and, and really their personality. The, the people of Ephraim seem to just be like chronic troublemakers. Uh, and they seem to just have this temperament where they're perpetually complaining. They're always challenging things. They always find reason to make an issue out of what's going on it seems interesting enough the issue is always about them why didn't you include us how come we didn't get to go out and fight in the battle with you we're going to burn your house down and they're just you know really angry and upset and unfortunately some people are like this they're just chronic troublemakers chronic complainers and unfortunately even sometimes there are those kind of people like this among God's people as well well verse 2 Jephthah said to them in response my people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when he says to them, when I called you, you didn't deliver me out of their hands. In other words, he says, uh, you were nowhere to be found. <laughs> I put out an opportunity to come fight in the battle. And he's basically saying, uh, you never showed up to help. <laughs> what are you giving me a hard time for? You never showed up when I put out an opportunity for people to come be involved. You made an excuse why you couldn't come or whatever. And, and you never showed up when there was a chance for you to show up. And I have to think that Jephthah's thinking in his mind as well. And hold on a minute here. Whoa, 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 slow down. The people of Ammon were oppressing us for 18 years. Where were you at the first 18 years? Why didn't you lead the rodeo if you wanted to get involved in the battle? <laughs> now, all of a sudden, after 18 years, they came to me. They asked me to do this and to lead. And now you're upset that after 18 years, you did nothing. And when I did it, you're upset with me because God used me in the process. And I didn't call you up to jump on the bandwagon to help out. So he says, verse 3, when I saw that you would not deliver me, that you didn't show up to help. He says, I took my life in my hands. And I crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. So he says somewhat in reproof or rebuke, why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? So again, you know, Jephthah has this kind of temperament, this personality you start to pick up with him as a leader, a very strong leader. And he's not really one of those individuals that you kind of want to cross, especially when you're wrong. Because... And you notice here the difference in temperament. When the Ephraimites came to Gideon, remember Gideon took the approach from Proverbs where it says a soft answer turns away wrath. 
And Gideon kind of diffused the situation. He's like, look, what have I done in comparison to you? I mean, you guys have done so. And he kind of just diffused the situation. He was really gracious and he kind of used the soft answer to turn. Jephthah's temperament as a leader is very different. Jephthah, when they cross Jephthah, Jephthah's like, listen, I'm not listening to your nonsense. Who do you think you are? <laughs> and he just rebukes them and puts them in their place and he just challenges them right back and kind of calls them out on what they were doing wrong and kind of a, just a completely different temperament. And in some ways, let me just say, I appreciate this because the reality is this. Different people have different temperaments. And even different leaders and uh, people who have different temperaments. I think of Ezra and Nehemiah when we get there ultimately. You know, when the people in Ezra's day sinned and rebelled against the Lord, it says that Ezra rent his own garments and he was ripping out his own beard and again, throwing dust on it. And the idea is he was tearing his own garments and grieving himself and afflicting himself over the people's sin and rebellion. In the days of Nehemiah, when the people do the same things that are sinful, it says that Nehemiah starts slapping the people. <laughs> so he knows that Ezra's you know, beating and afflicting himself. Oh, I can't believe why are the people doing this? Nehemiah is the total opposite. He starts whacking people. He's got a totally different counseling ministry. What's the matter with you people? And he just starts, you know, much more stern and uh, just in his approach to how he does things. I mean, he kind of had the exact opposite. What's the matter with you people? Repent, get straight. And he just much more kind of a, a again, more of a stern, uh, you know, strong temperament. And he, he, he wasn't as, as sentimental, maybe insensitive in some ways. But again, God uses different personalities. And there are different times, I think, in different seasons for all those things. And Gideon, he diffused the situation. He was gracious. Here, the same people, they perpetuated the same temperament, being troublemakers, doing the same kind of stuff. And when it came to the time where they crossed Jephthah, uh, that was a time where, where really, I think God had a different individual in place where God used that person to just rebuke them and put them in their place. And you know what? Let's be very frank. Sometimes that's ultimately just what people need. Uh, sometimes what people ultimately need is not somebody to always pacify their nonsense, but somebody to finally just challenge them and put them in their place. And this is what Jephthah did. This is how God used Jephthah. He didn't tolerate their troublemaking. He, he just directly dealt with them and really uh, was something perhaps that was what was necessary. He just happened to be the individual that they crossed this time and it was the wrong one to cross. Well, verse 4, Jephthah then gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim, notice, because, and this goes to show you again their temperament, what the men of Ephraim were doing. The men of Ephraim were saying, you Gileadites, which Jephthah was from, are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and Manassehites. So again, they're, they're heaping insults. Uh, you're just a bunch of fugitives and who do you think you are? And again, because of the running at the mouth and the things they were doing, the troublemaking, uh, it ultimately causes really a, a civil war here where we're going to see in the next few verses, 42,000 people died. A, a, a unnecessary civil war takes place, a, a bloody civil war where there's pain and loss of life. And what caused it? What precipitated a civil war, people getting hurt, 42,000 people dying unnecessarily, two things, wrong attitude and things that people were saying. 
It was the wrong attitudes in the heart of the people of Ephraim and it was them spouting off of the mouth saying things they shouldn't be saying. And boy, isn't it amazing the power of the tongue and the power of a wrong attitude and what can cause just really just painful separations tearing families apart tearing people apart just because of a heart being wrong and someone having a sinful attitude and then just saying things that are just heartful insulting and this is what happens the Ephraimites do this it causes a civil war Jephthah just retaliates very strongly a conflict escalates now verse 5 says the Gileadites these are the people Jephthah was from. They then seized the fords of the Jordan. These would be the crossing points of the Jordan River before the Ephraimites arrived. So they showed up to stop them from having access to cross over anymore. And when the Ephraimites, who had escaped from the conflict, said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to them, wait a minute, are you an Ephraimite? They said, no, 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 we're not Ephraimites. <laughs> We're not Ephraimites, don't, you don't have to worry about us. And they would say to them, well then say Shibboleth, and he would say Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan, and there fell, the Bible tells us parenthetically, as the result of this civil war, 42,000 Ephraimites. So uh, apparently this was a way that they were able to distinguish the people of Ephraim as they were trying to hide. They didn't want to end up losing their lives. So at a certain point they realized, whoa, we're in trouble. We got ourselves into quite a jam here. And they were trying to escape and sneak away and hide their identities. And so when they would come to the Jordan, try and slip across there were people there and they say, well, wait a minute, you, you, you kind of look like an Ephraimite. No, no, we're not Ephraimites. Oh, yeah? Say Shibboleth. And they were, oh, sh and, and they couldn't pronounce the SH sound, apparently because of their dialect or wherever uh, that was kind of the thing. We, we understand this. You live in different areas and people have different kind of dialects and accents and, these, and they couldn't pronounce the SH sound. So they would give themselves away and reveal their identity. And isn't this very interesting? It's somewhat kind of you know, humorous to look at, but here's the point I want you to grasp out of this. Notice that people were identified how? By their speech. By their speech. Their speech and the way that they spoke was what identified them. And, and this is a spiritual principle. Let's always remember Jesus said this. He said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, the point Jesus was making is you can tell a whole lot about a person by just listening to how they talk. Because what's in the well of a person's heart, ultimately, it's going to come overflowing over the lips and out of the gate of their mouth. And this is such a true thing. So often you can identify people, their heart attitudes, their nature, their temperament, where their heart is at. It's a real good way to inspect fruit sometimes by just listening to their speech, to what they talk about, to how they talk. And this, I think, is a helpful thing to remember because sometimes this is a good way to almost get a pulse on where our own heart is at. Just stop and listen to yourself talk sometime. What is the thing you're always talking about? 
or, or, or what kind of things and statements are coming out of your mouth when you're pressured or when, when you find yourself in, in difficulty. I mean, I you know recently in just a customer service phone call with someone on the telephone, you know, had all four of my girls tell me, look, you're not kind. You're not nice. No, I'm just honest. You no, know, no, just you're not kind. No, I'm, they're just, I just, people need to hear. And there's four of us. You're not nice. You're mean to people. You're trying to be honest, but when you're being honest, you're very you're very mean to people. And 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 I had to have a kindness reality check. And 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 a lot of times we can just listen to our own words and realize some real humbling, honest things about ourselves. I tell you, this is a great evaluator too. Making friends as a young person, you know, who you connect with, who you hang out with, sometimes trying to be careful and get a pulse on where somebody's out, but just listen to people talk. You know, what, what, what's coming out of their mouth? Sometimes you can identify who a person is or where they're really at and what their condition is by just listening to how they talk, what they talk about. I mean, is the, is the subject of their conversation always about them? Is that what they're always talking about? What's always on their mind? It's always about them? Or is it always you know, somehow steering the conversation back to what they're doing or their glory story or I'm doing this or I'm involved in that? I mean, are they, is it just constant self-promotion all the time? Or, or are they speaking in ways where you can tell their, their heart is kind of perverse or in a wrong place? I mean, this is a very interesting thing. It's a scriptural principle we see throughout the Bible where the words, the speech identifies who someone really is and even this practical sense it was the speech that identified for them that these people were Ephraimites well verse 7 tells us Jephthah judged Israel for six years and then Jephthah the Gileadite died and he was buried among the cities of Gilead and after him Isbon the Bethlehem uh, Isbon excuse me of Bethlehem judged Israel and he had 30 sons and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage. And he brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. And Isbon died and was buried in Bethlehem. So again, one of these what we might call more minor judges. They don't get a lot of press in the scripture. They're not a, a Gideon or a Jephthah or a Samson. We don't know a whole lot about them, what their exploits were, what they did do. Uh, just a very minimal amount. But again, the Holy Spirit still acknowledges their life, recognizes them. This man particularly uh, is one of the things we certainly see about him is uh, he had uh, quite a prolific Family there tells us there in verse uh, 9 that he actually had 30 daughters and apparently 30 sons. I mean, that's, that's 60 kids. Uh, I mean, that's, that's what I call a family man. I mean, that's 30 sons, 30 daughters, and uh, those marriages. I, you know, I do find it interesting. It says he gave away 30 daughters and he brought in 30 daughters elsewhere for his sons. Now, again, bringing in daughters for his sons, this was often done from the perspective of, of making alliances with different people groups strategically. A lot of times they would do this in the ancient culture. You would make alliances. You'd bring in someone else's daughter and bring that daughter from this next country over, village over, to marry your son. Because what that did is this. If you bring over the daughter from the next country over, she marries your son and then lives in your little kingdom or territory, guess what? That guy's not going to want to launch an attack against your territory 
because his precious daughter is a part of your kingdom now. And he wouldn't want to do something that's going to ruin the life or hurt or harm his daughter. So sometimes these were political alliances that were made in that way. Either way, there's something very beautiful. I, I think there's a beauty to the fact of seeing how, again, the father being involved in the, in the marital arrangements and there was some level of involvement where uh, we see this pattern in the scriptures of fathers giving away their daughters and kind of helping in the process of them finding mates. I think that's a, a healthy and a beautiful thing. We find it all throughout the scripture. Verse 11, after him, we see the Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel and he judged Israel 10 years and Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the country of Zebulun so we really know very little about him as well verse 13 and then after him Abdon so another judge the son of Hillel the Pirathonite <coughs> excuse me judged Israel and he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. So he spent a lot of time at the car lots. 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel eight years, and Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pyrethonite, died and was buried in Pyrethon, in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. So again, very little told about us. Uh, this individual, 40 sons, 30 grandsons, they rode on 70 donkeys. And as we said before, keep in mind, uh, that indicated somewhat uh, of someone who had uh, you know, either nobility or finance to each be able to have a donkey to ride upon. That indicated he was a, a man of influence somewhat in what he did in that day. Now, you know, I think it probably would be prudent. Chapter 13 begins now really the record of the life of Samson, probably the most famous judge uh, that we know in all of Israel. Chapter 13 begins to give us record of the Holy Spirit going and speaking to Samson's parents to inform them they're going to have a child, that this child would be uniquely set apart by God for purposes that God would want to use him for. Uh, and I'll tell you, the, the life of Samson, the character study of Samson, a lot of great lessons uh, can be learned from Samson's life. I mean, because this was someone who had incredible ability. I mean, giftedness, uh, you know, an ability to be useful and to do incredible things. But yet he had character that was about the depth of a centimeter. And the opportunity of what he could have done for God and the things he could have accomplished, I mean, Samson is such an incredible reminder to us of the importance of character and how God can use someone incredibly but if there's an absence of character, I mean, he was someone who did great things for God, great capability, but there was no true consecration in his heart over to God. And this became his downfall. Uh, the Bible, you know, sort of pictures Samson for us. He was someone, people say, who was a he man with a she weakness. Uh, and it leads to a lot of complications in his life. But then we'll see next week, read ahead chapter 13. I think there are some beautiful things that are revealed to us in chapter 13, even about the, the role of the parental process, godly parents. I think God selected some godly parents. These parents are going to ask God, tell us how to raise this child. What's his rule of life? God's going to speak to the parents of Samson. 
before he's even born and they're going to say he's going to be a male, he's going to be a Nazarite, he's going to be used to begin to lead the people and begin a deliverance from the people of the Philistines. And let me make this point to close with this, especially since this was just Sanctity of Life Sunday. God speaks to two people who were barren and couldn't even conceive a child. And he tells them they're going to conceive a child. Before the child is even conceived, God knows the sex of the child. God knows the purposes and plans for the life of that child. And God has a calling on that child's life. Even before conception. Don't tell me that every life doesn't have value. Because God knew all those things before the child was even conceived already. God had plans and purposes. Listen, let that be a reminder in our culture what we should represent. And let that be a subtle reminder to you tonight. Don't ever think your life does not have valuable purpose. Your life has incredible purpose. God told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I called you. I set you apart as a prophet in the nations. Before God formed you in your mother's womb, he's known everything about your life. And until you breathe your last breath, God has purpose and value for your life. Know that God values your life and has great purposes for it. Let's stand. Let's pray together.